0: You know, one of the most exciting things about working with Gun.io is I get to work with some of the most important consumer brands and fitness brands and enterprise brands. And what you find is that they're all looking for the very best talent and they're competing for it. And one thing I tell clients all the time is that, hey, you know, if you can develop um, the mindset to, to hire remote freelance engineers, what you're going to find is that it opens up the pool of available talent because... You're not going to have to fight over the same group of FTEs from all the other companies in your space. And so now what we can do is bring you a cohort of people that other companies aren't competing with you against. And it's really a competitive advantage to take stock of that and find some excellent people you can bring on board.
1: This is the Frontier Podcast powered by Gun.io the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier
0: Pod. So who is Andy Glover?
1: Yeah, so hey, uh, I run Delivery Engineering here at Netflix. So Delivery Engineering uh, is the team that ultimately uh, created Spinnaker, and we did that about a year after I joined Netflix. and uh, I live in California, and I'm from the East Coast, and I've been, I've been in the software industry now for uh, well over
0: 20 years. Mm. How'd you get started?
1: Well, uh, I studied computer science in college, very traditional, you know, in high school I started playing around with computers, I loved it, uh, and I learned Pascal in high school, and then I uh, went to college, learned, you know, C++, um, got a job with IBM. And the rest is history I started working at IBM right around the dot-com or uh, the boom, the first right, one, back right. in the you know, late nineties. It's um, interesting turn of events that will probably make sense to some listeners is I worked at a startup with a gentleman named Daniel Odeo. He ran sales. Uh, and, you know, ironically, our paths would cross again 20 years later here in the Valley. But yeah, I started at IBM. Uh, Then went to a series of startups, had my own company, uh, sold that, uh, worked at uh, some other companies, worked at a startup, um, had some, you know, just a blast, learned everything, you know, I mean, I shouldn't say everything, but uh, learned, you know, uh, just all sorts of new things and how not to do things and certainly had lots of failures. uh, And then uh, ended up here at Netflix.
0: uh, Right. Cool. And so for our listeners, uh, Daniel is the CEO of a company called Armory. Uh, A very you know hyper successful uh, company you know in the sort of Spinnaker ecosystem. Um, So um, okay, so so then like even to go sort of a layer deeper, like what so like what got you into computers like at that young age? Like do you remember some sort of moment? Like why? Yes, yeah.
1: So uh, I was it was either my freshman or sophomore year of high school, and uh, we were I was I was in the library with a couple friends. And uh, one of my friends, I think his dad was in, you know, was into computers. His dad may have been like a programmer somewhere, area. In, right. in but he essentially, uh, and I don't know how he did it to this day, but he like he, he hacked into this game that we were playing. I can't remember <laughs> the name of the game, but it was like Voyage of the Mimi or something like that. It was just yeah. this weird game that was like educational, and he made it, uh, and it was like one of these text-based games that would ask you questions, and you'd make decisions, and he kind of made it. Uh, Like, he threw in, like, kind of crude words in it. And I thought it was the most hilarious thing in the world that the computer was asking me these, like, ridiculous questions when I was used to it asking very academic, you know, educational questions. And he had done this uh, just sitting next to me, like, fooling around on the computer. And I was like, "Ah, that is magic, and I want to do the same thing. Um, uh, Yeah, his name was Justin. And uh, he was the one who got me into computers, and ever since then, I've just, you know, I've always been like, just playing with computers and hacking on things and trying to figure out how things work, and ultimately trying to make them ask me crude questions.
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I think um, I think I think everybody who gets interested in sort of manipulating technology has some sort of mischievous or like maybe like rebellious streak. Like you want to you want to be able to change the 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 thing as it were to your own yeah. to your own bidding yeah um okay so like so you've so now you've been um sort of a programmer a uh, a leader of programmers for you know close to two decades or so um you know i'm curious to see how um you know like what would you have told yourself when you were first getting into the industry like did you did you take a software job when you first graduated from college um, you know, sort of what, yeah. you know, what advice would you give yourself two decades ago?
1: Well, so I actually ended up, uh, getting a, you know, a programming job before I graduated college. Uh, I'll tell you an interesting story. Um, so I was working at IBM and I, uh, I had actually taken, uh, like a, let's say a break from college. Mm. Uh, and I was having a blast, you know, I was making good money. Um, but I wanted to go back to college. And so I was uh, applying to go back to some East Coast schools and a mentor at IBM. I told him, like, hey, look, I'm going to applying to these schools. What do you think? You know, they're top tier schools. Huh? You know, they have great computer science programs. And he was like, oh, that's really interesting. And then he just kind of looked at me and he goes, so well, let, me, let me get this straight. You are going to leave IBM, go back to school to get your degree so that you can then get this job again. <laughs> And I was like, ah, yeah, I guess so. He's like, well, why don't you just like go to night school? You can get your degree, you know, in, in many different ways if you really want a degree. You don't need to leave IBM and, and then, you know, interview to get the same job. Brian. Why not keep it? Uh, and so I ended up doing just that uh, in terms of uh, going to school part-time uh, and eventually got my degree, but I was working the whole time. So uh, that was more advice I would give to, uh, you know, uh, I guess perspective uh, people who were thinking the same thing as me in terms of there are plenty of uh, individuals out there that get jobs, let's say in high school or out of high school. And there's, uh, you can, if if a degree is very important to you, you can't, you don't have to go to like, you know, full-time four-year school to, to get a degree. You can certainly do it on, you know, on the side. Um, So one thing, I really got interested in at some point early in my career was networking. And I just was fascinated with like TCP, IP, ethernet, all that good stuff. And, uh, so I I got really smart on it and I thought at one point that I wanted to become a a network engineer. And I remember another mentor saying, no, 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 you got to stick with software. Like this is where he actually said, this is where all the money is. Um, and, uh, so I stuck with software, but I, I, I certainly think, you know, networking and network engineers, they do some amazing things, but, um, I probably wouldn't have spent, uh, or I went down the route of even like trying to get like, uh, some certifications there so that someone would hire me. I probably wouldn't have done that. Uh, right. And then the, the other thing that I learned later, this was a while ago, but still later in my career is that, you know, I, I at IBM, I was ultimately paid to write Java and I love Java and I just want to do Java forever. And, uh, but then I branched out and I've been paid to write, you know, Ruby, Python, C, C++, objective C, you name it, all that. And I, I, I I do find that, uh, working in other languages, but not so much as a hobby, but like being paid to put stuff in production in other languages, uh, is a very, very valuable skill that I wish I had like embraced much earlier in my career.
0: Mm. How do you, so like now, I mean, how much programming do you do now as, uh, you know, no. certain, yeah. Very little, sadly. Headside. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I totally understand. Okay, so then, you know, what would be interesting is like maybe how much time do you spend between, let's say, honing your craft? Because I think management is a craft, just yeah. like software is a craft. You know, how do you think about sharpening your current kind of skill set versus actually deploying your skill set to like add value? in your role, right? Um, and then how did you think about that sort of when you were like just a line programmer and contributing code to the... To the
1: yeah, uh, so I, I kind of had this real uh, crisis uh, about, f- let's say five years ago, five and a half years ago um, here at Netflix. Um, so I, I, you know, I've, I've, I've always been like a hands-on uh, developer, let's say like, you know, uh, but also a leader. But I think in retrospect, I don't think I was ever very good at management. Like, I was far better at, like, just putting my head down and, like, writing code. Yeah. But I really enjoyed that. So, like, at the last startup I was at, I was the CTO. Right. Which in most companies means, like, you're a manager, per se. Like, you have a team and you're, like, making business decisions. And that affect technology, let's say. You know, you're ensuring all the illities, so to speak. And I was doing that, but, like, I was also very much... Essentially, like the lead, let's say programmer for this this startup, and I was writing code, you know, uh, and I loved it. And I was writing, right. Ruby, I was writing in Java, Android, you know, uh, iOS. I mean, I was doing it all, and I had such a blast. Um, and so when I came to Netflix, I was very much the same in that I was still writing code and also trying to manage a team. And and then ultimately we we decided, hey, we're gonna we're gonna build this new thing called Spinnaker. That's going to address this very, very you know poignant pain that Netflix engineers are, are, are feeling, and so I was I was very excited to start writing code there as well, and so uh, but I I came to this realization that I can't I can't do both. That is, I can't be a developer on Spinnaker and also uh, essentially product manage and sell Spinnaker to the rest of Netflix. And that was very, very important that like we have users using it and we validate these use cases and that we're not just building this thing in a vacuum and hoping that, you know, if we build it, they will come totally. Uh, And, and also recognizing that the, you know, the team that I had assembled around me was actually quite better than me at developing. Uh, and so I should just leave it to them and that my real value was in helping, uh, you know, expand upon like, where, what should we go after? What use cases should we, you know, should we, we should we address? What should should we not address? Which team should we work with? And ultimately how do we roll this thing out to, you know, the rest of Netflix and then ultimately beyond Netflix. Uh, And so, but I remember thinking that I, at this one, and I remember taking a walk thinking like, I'm going to walk away from the code. I just don't have time to do this. I can't be successful at both. And is this what I really want? to do with my career and uh, I did opt to, you know, uh, not so much walk away from the code, but like just basically leave it to people way better than me and uh, that my value uh, was different. And and it was hard because like it's really easy when you look at like, hey, this thing, this feature just shipped and that was all me, you know, there's like, uh, there's my value, you can point to it, you know, like all these users are getting all this value out of this thing that I built, Um, as opposed to when you move into, you know, let's say more management, uh, it's everyone else that does all the value and like your value is in helping them, uh, you know, achieve that, so to speak. It's very much behind the scenes and it it can be, uh, it's sobering, but it's also very rewarding in its own way.
0: Totally. Yeah. I mean, in some ways it's like, so are you an introvert or a, an extrovert? Like, do you get energy from people or like from being in a room and like doing something?
1: Yeah. So I, uh,
0: That's a, it's a, it's like a really rough, you know, like blunt model, but, but, you know, I'm curious to hear.
1: So the answer is both. Like, I think I really am an introvert. Like I really, but on the flip side, I really enjoy like being around other people. I love getting up in front of an audience and, and, or I should say, I, I, I dread it and fear it tremendously until (laughs) I'm up there speaking. Um, but then, uh, after events like that, I need to be alone. Like I very much like, uh, I just like you know, go for a run. And, and for me, which is another interesting thing, you know, there's, there's a people talk about meditation and praying and there's what's the other, uh, uh, self-reflection and right. there's another that's kind of, uh, or a phrase that's popular these days, uh, which of course slips my mind, but I think they're all interrelated in terms of like, people just need to be by themselves and think, um, yeah whether if that's go out and, you know, go to church and pray or go meditate or be mindful, mindfulness, that's the, uh, you
0: know,
1: and for me, that's like going out for a bike ride or a run or a swim is like, that's time where I get to like, just think. And a lot of patterns come together or are linked. And uh, I do, it's the same thing that people talk about, like in the shower this morning, I had this great idea. It's it's the same. All of those are interrelated. um, Yeah. Very and that, and that to me is like the introvert part of me. Like I need that time.
0: Totally. Yeah. I mean, there, I mean, there used to be a time when I would see something on the product backlog and I just want to do it myself. Cause I know that I, I would feel good about doing it. And like, yeah. you know, when you're not having to kind of marshal people and like do a thing as a group, you can like lock yourself in a room, have a cup of coffee and like get that thing done. And it feels really good. In fact, yes. you, know, you get, yep. you get, you get tired of hand waving and all this stuff, but then you, you go and you say, I should not be doing this right now. Like you, almost, I, at least I started to feel guilty, and I don't know if you ever got to that point where you know you felt guilty if you were shipping code because your value, your highest and best use in your role, is to sort of set the vision and let other people actually execute. Um, but that's God.
1: yeah. But the, you know, there's also this like uh, you know the the uh, maybe this tightrope that uh, those in technical management walk is that like you want credibility, right? Like yes, of course. In order to be an effective manager of, you know, highly technical skilled people, you have to understand like what yes. they are doing and have empathy for the challenges they're solving. Totally. And in many ways you, you you can only get that if you've done it before or at least are still doing it or, or care about it. So that's this, you know, what the, the, People sometimes look, or I should say engineers, and I was one of them, look at like management as like this evil, like kind of like just overhead, like what value do they provide? Um, and I think that's ultimately potentially because let's say we've all worked with those managers that just didn't have a concept. They they didn't understand the technology underneath. So I think it's very important to have that right that, uh, that understanding or at least that credibility or at least that experience. Uh
0: Yeah, I mean, 100%, like, you know, all of the tools that we're using today, you know, have not existed, like, five or 10 years, I mean, five years ago, right? And so, like, you know, like, software has existed for a long time, but the tools that we're using are very new. And so, you know, I liken it almost to, like, medicine, where you have an attending physician, but that person has been a physician, and they've kind of done the work themselves, but it's different because, like you know, a lot of the medical procedures are the same as they once were, and people know how to train them, right, for twenty years. But you know, like you guys invented spinnaker, which is like a new thing, and so how do you, like, how do you conceive of managing that vision? How do you conceive of training new people to execute against basically uncharted territory? Uh, and that's sort of an an interesting, an interesting problem, I think. You
1: know, the the other thing that I think is interesting that um. Uh, to your earlier question about like what I wish, you know, early Andy had known.
0: Yeah. That,
1: like the, I, the software let's say development industry keeps kind of doing the same things. We keep building on these like basic principles. And, uh, I think it's important to understand that cause like you have to understand where we were to, to understand how we got here. Yeah. And, uh, and I think it also is refreshing when you look at like, so the state of the world isn't perfect. Like we are constantly innovating and that's what makes this industry so much fun.
0: Right. And uh, like
1: whatever is cool or really interesting today, you know, tomorrow chances are it won't be.
0: Right.
1: Um, but kind of looking historically, there are these like great truths that like keep being repeated. Um, and just recognizing that like that
0: early on is important. Yeah. What are um, some... What are some, what are some of the truths? Sorry to cut you off. I just didn't. No,
1: I know. I mean, while it's like, I mean, there are no silver bullets, you know, like everyone preaches like a a great, like kind of, um, let's say this watershed moment, at least in my career, uh, which anyone in let's say the Java, you know, Java sphere, if you will, like in the last, I guess it was 10, 15 years. will remember this is like when Ruby and rails came out and like, there was Mm. this like, you know, A lot of the hardcore Java community left and went to Ruby Um, and that is because ultimately there was this promise of like you could build web apps like really quick on Rails, which was true. Uh, and everyone thought this was like this amazing thing. And like, you know, DHA was like, you know, a God right, know? Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. and he was like, he was a really smart dude and he picked up on a pattern and he built something beautiful. Yeah. But like what people failed to recognize is like in order for him to have done that, like it had to be bad. Like he didn't just all of a sudden decide, I want to make this great, you know, uh, fast, you know, web framework. It was like, yeah. wow, there's a lot of pain in the ecosystem, in the Java ecosystem right now. And I can do it better. And so I don't, people, and what I, and so this, and like that's, that happens again and again in terms of like people experience pain and then they build something new. And I think some people forget that that pain was important and we can learn a lot from that pain. And I eventually did a lot of Ruby stuff and I loved it, but then there was like, it wasn't a silver bullet. Like there were definitely problems in the Ruby community or let's let's just say the Ruby ecosystem. Um, and so I ended up going back to Java uh, for other reasons. And so You know, there are no silver bullets in that uh, we, you know, we, we have to have these pains in order for innovation to come out of it. And it's a case in point with Spinnaker, like before Spinnaker here at Netflix, there were a number of, let's say solutions that facilitated continuous delivery. There was at, there was this thing called Asgard. Yeah. There's Jenkins. There was like, you know, a bunch of scripts that like glued them all together, so to speak. And like it worked, but it was really, really painful. And so all of a sudden we had this opportunity. And we were like, "Hey, we could build this thing that makes it easier," and and uh, so we built it, right? And 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 I think appreciating that like where we came from made it. It's like it's everything's an evolution, you know. Uh, and so like there will be something better, you know, someday. And I just hope that people realize that in order to build the better thing, you had to have something before it. It like wasn't this great idea. Um, in fact, there are. Uh, I mean, there are great ideas. Don't get me wrong, but like, there aren't a lot of great original ideas. Like, we just keep building on top of each other. Like, Spinnaker was not original. Like, continuous delivery is not an original right. idea let's, from Netflix or me or anything like that. Like, we just basically were able to connect some patterns and say, "Hey, we can do it here."
0: Well, so like, what was the genesis of Spinnaker? Like, who basically was like, "Hey, we should we should improve how we're doing this and stop tying together a bunch of different solutions?" It was me and my team. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. And so and so like what were you working on before like you before you were like we have to solve this now? Like what how, yeah. You,
1: yeah, so I you know when I came to Netflix uh, I took over the Asgard team.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: And uh but the, here's the thing is that we also uh the team we had a we had an internal product called Mimir that also did continuous delivery better than let's say Asgard. It had this notion of pipelines, but uh, it had some other problems but it was beautiful in that like we, we, we learned a lesson. We were like, Hey, there's value in this idea of, of like chaining events, let's say, or, wow. or state. Uh, but there were other solutions at Netflix. There were teams using Jenkins. There was another team, a well-respected, uh, well-regarded team that had built their own, let's say, continuous delivery platform called edge center, which was awesome. They learned a bunch of, you know, lessons. And so it became clear to me and other people, let's say within, uh, Netflix that like, Hey, why don't we just, we need a centralized solution here. Like, why is, why is this team over here? That's really charged with making, let's say the Netflix product better Mm. uh, faster or, you know, more beautiful. Why are they building tooling to facilitate, you know, delivering software? Like why shouldn't a centralized team do that? And so, uh, the pattern, you know, the real value I brought was in saying we could do that because we already had the skills uh, and it was then rallying let's say quote unquote the troops around the company to say hey we're going to build this new thing it's high risk um, but the beauty is is like uh, we're going to learn all the, you know we've already learned a bunch of lessons and we're going to embody them in the one product rather than like six and if we can get everyone on this one product then like we'll see these efficiencies because then we can innovate on this one product uh, and that's why we have this notion of like the paved road and a, a really great example of this is automated canary analysis. Like that was, that's existed at Netflix as a thing or as a process, as value uh, long before, uh, or or I should say longer than Spinnaker. Like there was a team that had built an ACE, you know, automated canary analysis engine. Mm. The thing is, is like people had to like customize how that was plugged into their delivery process. So you had like scripts and Jenkins jobs and everyone did it differently. And some teams didn't even have the time to do it, but they wanted that thing. they were like, yeah, I want to canary my code before it goes down to production. That's a great idea. But they, you know, for whatever reason, they didn't have the time to like glue it all into their process. But if you, you know, if you learn all these lessons and then you build, let's say a centralized product or thing um, that does it for you, then like you get it for free. And so that's what happened. You know, we, we built Spinnaker and then we added uh, an automated canary analysis stage in Spinnaker, mm. and all of a sudden, we brought, you know, or I should say, delivery engineering brought ACA to the masses at Netflix because now it was really easy to use. All you had to do was like build a Spinnaker pipeline, right? Rather uh, than writing a bunch of custom glue code, you know, for your customized delivery process. So,
0: right. But many, again, God, sorry, sorry. but you say, we
1: only could have gotten there by having done all the other things. You know, it's like yeah. we wouldn't have just all of a sudden thought of like, yeah, we should do this and like roll it out to the entire company. It was like we had to. We had to see the pattern to, to recognize it.
0: Do you guys, um, do you, so like how do you guys think about this? Do you guys track like the amount of engineers that are using Spinnaker at, or is it the whole company that's basically using Spinnaker? Yeah, well, so
1: early on, we definitely did track adoption because there were multiple, you know, ways to deliver things into yeah. production, in this case, AWS. Uh, so we did track adoption. Um, and then the metric of value was, well, let's, let's track deployments into AWS. And if that grows, you know, that's a proxy metric for value. Of course. And uh, we saw that double in short order. And so I, I've done presentations in the past where I've mentioned that, you know, we were, we were, I say, we're doing 4,000 deployments into AWS, you know, production a day. And then it, um, it dawned on us that that was actually not, the appropriate metric to to demonstrate Spinnaker's usage at Netflix because, again, uh, pattern matching all of a sudden other teams were like, well, hey, I could use Spinnaker to deploy my library uh, into Artifactory, so to speak, or I could use it to deploy this JavaScript application to a CDN. Mm. Um, I could use it to roll out firmware updates to like hardware running in data centers serving up video. Uh, and all of a sudden, the, the metric for deployments a day into AWS is no longer appropriate because we're doing other things like altering fast properties or feature flags. And so then we we, 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 we change the metric to, well, how many pipelines are run a day? That's real value there. So, uh, again, we wouldn't have started out saying pipelines per day is like the, the beautiful metric. And in fact, now we're having discussions, is that even the right metric to show like Spinnaker's value at Netflix? So
0: right. Right, I mean, because the value has even grown sort of beyond Netflix now, right? I mean, there's sure. there's an entire company ecosystem built on Spinnaker or around it, you know, as it were. Yeah, uh-huh. and that's you- great. So, you know,
1: that's that's just an awesome development in and of itself. Like we we certainly didn't foresee that happening when we decided to open source Spinnaker, and, and the real value of that ecosystem is like the shared innovations. Uh, you know, speaking from a Netflix perspective, it's great for recruiting. It's great for retention and like, you know, industry validation, but like, we also get like innovations out of it. You know, Uh, there are people in the Spinnaker ecosystem that are adding features for their companies that now, you know, Netflix engineers are using. And that's awesome. I mean, that that's the true, I think, value of open source for any enterprise or big company or any company, I should say. Is like when you, when you can get an ecosystem around it and people, you know, people start innovating and you may not be able to use all of the innovations, but even using some of it is like, is huge.
0: Totally. Yeah. Yeah. You share the cost of innovation and y'all get to use it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like having a, you know,
1: a gigantic R and D arm, you know, that's global.
0: Exactly. um,
1: So yeah, there, I mean, there's, there's, there's innumerable features, bug fixes, enhancements, you name it. Uh, that we leverage here at Netflix that were written by, you know, awesome people like, you yeah. know, in Europe or wherever. It doesn't matter where they are. They're just totally. not, they're not working at Netflix. You know
0: Totally. Totally. So what, okay. So how do you spend your weeks? Like, what do you think about these days? If you're not putting down code yourself, like what, what does a week in the life of Andy look like?
1: <laughs> well, so ultimately, are we? I spend time trying to ensure or think about: Are we providing the maximum amount of value to Netflix? Yeah. Uh, where's Netflix going, and how can we ensure that uh, Netflix engineers are are you know have are able to deliver code rapidly, uh, reliably, safely, um, you know, uh, and continuously? Uh, another thing that has been interesting is that uh, here at Netflix, uh, delivery engineering has grown. Uh, Not only in scope in terms of the number of let's say things that are you know are being delivered let's say at Netflix not only is it like containers and and libraries and you know and VMs and uh, Whatever, uh, you know firmware updates blah 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 Uh, but uh, a new team has joined delivery engineering and that's uh, resilience engineering and Mm -hmm. they uh, they have an impressive suite of uh, products uh, around like the notion of chaos engineering, so everyone knows what you know or is familiar with the term chaos engineering, and so that 's ultimately what this team is, and so I spend a lot of time trying to figure out well how do we get chaos engineering uh, rolled out so to speak to the masses because it 's a, a amazing um, suite so we call it chap here at Netflix, and chap allows you to basically validate is your is your is your application resilient and it 's still yeah um it's still somewhat of a you know a a black art you know it takes some some white gloves to 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 get it going and the teams that are leveraging it are like getting extreme value
0: yeah
1: uh, being able to run experiments and see if they're you know if their app ultimately you know is resilient under these certain conditions and we want to make it so that anyone can do that very easily for any app um and so that's something i've been thinking about the other big initiative that we're working on here at Netflix and we're going to talk a lot about, or I shouldn't say a lot, but we are going to talk about it at the Spinnaker Summit is is this idea of managed delivery and where we're taking Spinnaker. Mm. And if you think of it from like, again, this is all evolutionary, like you have to do the first thing in order to see the pattern for the second thing. Right. Is uh, At Netflix, you know, we've got everyone essentially uses Spinnaker for delivery, um, but it's it's very much an imperatively let's say defined paradigm in that like if you're an app owner you you create a pipeline that you know does X Y and Z and ultimately validates your software and then you know let's say deploys it into AWS to use like the most simple case
0: uh-huh.
1: and uh, that pattern um, is, is fairly simple and, and fairly uniform like many teams do the same thing it's like do X Y and Z uh, you know deploy here run some tests validate it maybe ACA, maybe, you know, run some CHAP experiments against it. And if those are all good, then release it to the rest of the world. And, and you know, and one way of looking at that is well, why, why do you have to always define that? Why can't you, you just say, you know, my app meets these, you know, let's say this criteria, and then we can define it. For, well, like we can build that for you. So moving from, let's say an imperative to a declarative way of thinking about things, just basically upfront declaring, let's say I'm a, whatever, I'm I'm a global or a tier one app um, and I have these KPIs Mm. uh, and ultimately then Spinnaker can create a pipeline that does that for you. And the beauty there is, is then as the best practices, let's say, uh, evolve around that, we can, we can do that for you rather than you having to go and update your pipeline to take advantage of, let's say this new deployment pattern, or to run this new experiment that we think is more powerful than the last one. Um, So there's, a huge amount of, let's say, efficiencies that we can gain by moving to a more declarative world. So that's what managed delivery is. And it also goes much farther than just, say, delivery patterns. But, like, even the underlying infrastructure, um, we, can, we, can, we can gain efficiencies there, for example, using the AWS, let's say, uh, example. Uh, as anyone who's ever, let's say, worked with AWS or any cloud provider, you have, like, these underlying instances that, you know, software is ultimately deployed on. And those instances are constantly, let's say, being upgraded and, and, and evolving. Uh, and and on top of that, for example, you could buy, let's say, reserved instances so that you don't go into on-demand pricing. All that right now is is essentially manually done. Or not manually, but like if if Netflix buys, let's say, a new... A fleet of reserved instances like we were you know you have to then go and say okay my next deployment i'm going to go to this new whatever like m10 let's imagine there's new m10s but ultimately we could do that behind the scenes for you or if there were better pricing let's say on this other one we could put you there so there's that's just one very small example but when you go to it so managed delivery is ultimately saying hey you just tell us what your expectations are and we'll figure out the details and it's going to be a many-year journey but that's where we're taking continuous delivery right now And that's, that's very much on my mind.
0: Yeah, that's super neat. That's cool. And so it sounds like you've sort of embraced, um, the vision setting and the visionary role, um, of owning Spinnaker and maybe even like all of, um, so you, you guys, what is the department again? It's continuous delivery, or uh,
1: so the name of the organization that I run is called Delivery Engineering.
0: Delivery Engineering. Okay, got it. Cool. And so, and so, it seems like I mean, you can even hear the energy coming from you when you're talking about like, hey, like this is this is where we're going. So that's really neat. Uh, you know, I, I had the privilege of talking to a couple of of um, let's say. Um, engineers by training who are now leaders of engineers and it's always interesting to hear how they're processing they're changing in roles because like okay actually I have a related question are there any people at Netflix that like are let's say you know have been engineers for five years at Netflix and just go straight up an IC track like do you guys have that notion at Netflix of just like uh, individual contributors just like, yeah, like yeah okay okay Cool. Oh yeah no
1: I mean they uh there I guess I don't know if I understand the question so there's definitely ICs like Netflix is is it tries to be very flat in the sense of there are senior software engineers and that's the IC track it doesn't go okay, up okay. uh but there are a great many I mean in fact everyone here is a senior software engineer but yeah um, uh, and everyone here is uh, is is very smart you know we we have this notion of a stunning colleague but like I work totally here some amazing, you know, uh, developers who have you know, been doing this way longer than me and are far more skilled
0: at it than I am. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. So like, you know, one of the things that, that we think about is like, um, you know, and it's sort of a historical accident that like companies are in fact the capital, um, I guess, I don't know, providers for the craft of software development. But if you think about it, like software development, um, is not unlike any other craft you know masonry or anything like that right it just happens to be way more profitable because it has infinite scale right like that's it like you can like you can literally you can't build a trillion houses at once when you can conceivably do that (laughs) with a with a with you know some sort of applications literally on the internet right and so um you know one of the things we think about is like what, um, and this, I don't even know if this is a question. It's just something that I'm curious to hear your thoughts on. Like, how do you think about um, apprenticeship? How do you think about training? Like, you know, so you work with seniors. Like, are you ever given like a super junior person to just like scale up and train? Or like, does that not happen uh, in your org?
1: So uh, in general, that doesn't happen at Netflix. And that's that's ultimately oh, um, okay, just okay. kind of the, the the approach that Netflix took in terms of like, uh, for better, for worse, the idea being, Hey, um, we are not set up, let's say to, we don't have like mentorship programs or, uh, let's say, uh, training around internships. Uh, the, the thought being that's, you know, let, let people go out and do that, gain that experience, learn mm. those hard lessons. And then they come here and ostensibly, you know, have learned all those lessons. That being said, yeah. um, we, we are growing rapidly. Uh, and I know some teams are looking into like, well, how do we effectively do some sort of like apprenticeship with, you know, they're very specialized, let's say, you know, uh, domains where there are PhDs, you know, studying at, let's say, you know, Stanford or something, I don't know, uh, around, let's say encoding. And is there some way to bring them in and, 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 and get them kind of trained up on how they would do this in, the, in, in a professional setting? Right. Uh, but on my team, ultimately, uh, we aren't staffed to do that, but I think it is a great idea. You know, it's always the chicken and egg problem in terms of like, well, uh, if we're going to have, uh, you know, a senior software engineer, what, where do they get their experience and, and what are we doing to help, you know, all of us at some point we're we're, were junior developers, so to speak, right? All of us needed, yeah. someone took a chance on all of us, right? Uh, And if we're not doing that, like how, how good is that for the industry? And we think about like increasing diversity in the software development field, which is unfortunately not very diverse. um, You know, there, there, there are ways we can, we can improve that. And so that's a very much a a topic of conversation here at Netflix and certainly within my team.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, it's interesting. Like one thing I definitely appreciate about Netflix is that you guys have very strong and well thought out stances on a number of different, um sort of i would say like i don't know what the right um conceptual architecture is but maybe cultural issues is that the right way to frame it but you guys have thought that through you know from the way that you guys have organized i mean i would say netflix and you know you you brought out VHH earlier with 37 signals were like the main two remote proponents right um and you guys have this famed culture deck and so maybe like it'd be interesting to hear um, sort of how that kind of cascades through your organization and how you, how you think about that. Like how much of that is level set at the at the top of the org and then how much autonomy you guys have um, in, in sort of setting culture for your specific division. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I think ultimately the, the, the company very Netflix very much lives the culture that you mentioned in the culture deck. Uh, and that, um, you have microcultures that are very much fashioned around let's say you know the Netflix culture or mm. i heard once once it was ref- you know someone referred to as it, kind of like the constitution um, every <laughs> state is like slightly different in terms of how they interpret it but ultimately there are these like guidelines and that's very much as it is at Netflix like the high level you know culture it, it, it has a number of you know values for example that we value in tenants Um, and then they're put into practice at individual team levels and while there are some micro differences uh, I would say in general every team very much operates around our culture in terms of like feedback and context over control and a number of other aspects.
0: Mm. So are you working out of San Francisco right now? Is that where? Well yeah so
1: actually I'm in Los Gatos so uh, Netflix yeah so South Bay. Um, We have a number of offices now so um, predominantly all engineering, uh, for Netflix is done here in Los Gatos. Mm. Uh, and then we have a large presence in LA where, as you can imagine, there's like our studio stuff, but there's more and more engineering going on in LA, but we have offices now, um, all over the world. So when I joined Netflix, we had two offices, one here, uh, in Los Gatos and one in LA, but now we have offices in the Amsterdam, you know, Tokyo, you know, all over. <laughs>
0: yeah. 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 Do you, ever feel, do you ever feel compelled to travel and work from another office or do you ever have to do that? Yeah.
1: Or? So I spent, uh, earlier this year, a whole lot of time in LA trying to just get to know the folks down in LA. Cause again, there are people down there using Spinnaker for example, uh, and trying to understand what their needs are and how we could help them. Uh, we now have a team dedicated to LA. So I work close with that team. Um, but yeah, I haven't had a chance to uh, to visit our you know our our offices overseas, but I, I sure hope to one day. Yeah, uh, yeah, we offices in Mumbai. I mean, I mean, all over the world. It's 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 fascinating. Uh, at this point, there isn't a lot of engineering going on there, but I suspect that'll change. And as that changes, I will uh, I will gladly go out there and understand how I can help them.
0: <laughs> Sweet. Um, so to close us off, how about some practical? You know, so basically our entire labor force works remotely for clients, you know, across the world, which is pretty neat. Uh, But like, you know, I kind of look at it like, you know, almost like um, a bunch of simultaneous experiments on remote work best practices happening. Uh, And, you know, some projects end up, you know, because you can only do so much to to say, hey, make sure you show up on time. Hey, make sure that you communicate effectively. Right. Because ultimately these people are independent professionals. They're going to do what they want to do. But, you know, but, you know, I think the way we can perhaps improve is by getting lessons from people like yourself, leaders who are thinking about ways to work remotely, best practices and management, and let's say relationship management. So, you know, it'd be helpful to kind of hear, like, working in a remote context, what are, like... Give me like the top three things. I know it's hard. That's a weird question. But like, what are the top three actual behaviors that you have kind of so like was app 47 a fully remote business? Or was that like, okay, got it. Okay, so so from that from Netflix, like share with me, like, I don't know, some things you're like, shit, all right, I need to start doing this now. And this is the way well, I'll tell
1: you what, real quick, uh, just to also set some context is Netflix really doesn't do remote. So uh, like my entire team is here in Los Gatos. Um. And that's not to say that remote's bad, but I think this goes into I, the first thing I would say is if you are going to embrace remote, you have to go all in because yeah. you either you embrace remote. Or you don't, because there's no in between. Because remote is very difficult, and so Netflix, you can look at it, said, "You know what? We are not optimized for remote. We are optimized for face to face. You know, rapid discussion." Uh, It's not to say that we don't have every once in a while someone who's working remotely. Um, And as you said, communication is vital. Uh, And I think one thing to, and and Netflix is increasingly doing this because we are a global company, and now we do have remote offices, but not necessarily remote teams. is this notion of like how do you effectively communicate and and ultimately putting things we call it a memo culture is like hey it's one thing for you and I to have a discussion but unfortunately no one else heard it Uh, (laughs) if we put it into like writing then we can share it and so then there becomes the other challenge is well how do you get everyone to read it that's a we'll say that separately but I think effective communication is like is not like a slack message or an email maybe it is but like it's how do you capture like the essence of a, of, let's say a thought or an initiative or whatever it is, and then share it with the right people. Mm -hmm. Um, and if I had, you know, if, if we, if, if I had the answers or anyone had the answers that they'd be wildly successful, but like, that's, that's a real challenge. Um, you know, there's this adage. you know, you, you have to, you have to repeat the same thing over and over again until people finally, you know, let's say not understand it, but like conceptualize it and say, okay, yes, I get it now.
0: Yeah. Uh, So, have you heard? So like one way I've heard that framed is like when you get tired of saying something is when people start to hear it. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I, I like that makes, I'm like, oh, holy shit. Okay. That, that's what makes sense to me. Cause I get, if I say the same thing twice, I get tired of it, but yeah. Think,
1: yeah. yeah, no, I same here. And I think, and I think we have like all of us again, software engineers have this like mindset. It's like, well, I already said that. I like am. why do I have to say it again? Well, it's because Yeah, you said that in that meeting that only three people were in and the other six people that are on your team weren't there for it. And so they missed it. Um, And so like write it down and somehow then the real challenge is, well, how do you spread that, you know, that context? Uh, And, and, you know, there are many different ways of doing it. I'd say the other thing that's really helpful, uh, and again, this is something I wish I had learned a long time ago, and it doesn't matter if you're remote or not, is this whole notion of like, as a leader or even as a peer, um, when the people around you do something that you you deem wrong mm. you need to ask yourself what context did you fail to provide mm. so think of it from the standpoint of a leader regardless of again people around me are remote if if people do something that let's say is wrong or you know dumb or something like that in my opinion uh many people's reaction is to be like why'd you do that like what were you thinking like that was ridiculous but it's flipping it on its head and saying well what context did i fail to provide that that then they acted upon like with that little information and made the right decision or, or excuse me made the decision they thought was right given the context that they had and so it's again goes back to this whole effective communication in terms of like there's all this context in like leaders heads and all of our heads your peers heads and how do you share that effectively so that people are are ultimately you know working with the right information because the other assumption that we make here at Netflix is that everyone's a fully formed adult right. like i assume you are doing the right thing for the company and that uh, whatever you know whatever actions you take, I may disagree, but like you are you're not doing it to to sabotage the company or something. You're doing right. it because you believe it's the right thing for Netflix. So again, regardless if you're you know in the same room or remote is how do you share context and then do we treat people like adults and assume that they have the freedom to make the right decisions. Uh, and once you go to that level, then you recognize that it's very, very important that we're all aligned and have the same understanding of certain concepts. Uh, or initiatives or whatever it is, and a real effective way to do that is to put it on paper or, like, in a document form, whether it be, like, a PR or whatever, you name it. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's so hard to do, and, and many small companies, you know, all the ones I was in, you know, previous to this, totally. were very bad about that. I was like, yeah, we had this decision, like, you know, the CEO and I made this decision, and thou shalt, like, do it. And it's like, well, not everyone heard it or understood totally. it.
0: Totally. So. Yeah. Okay. So what, how do you get people to read it? That's the question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm
1: still trying to figure that one out. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it, it's, it's hard, right? Because then like people are inundated with like emails and Slack messages and documents
0: yeah.
1: and, um, it's hard. And so you, you, you have to learn how to distill like, okay, as a leader, what information do I want people to, to have? Cause there's so much of it. And so like distilling it for people and saying, okay, like, Uh, here's the essence of this and then making it relatable to them, not just saying, you know, this decision was made at the CEO level and people are like, well, why does that matter to me? It's like, and that's the job of a leader saying, and this is how it affects us. Like the company is going to make this strategic bet and, you know, engineers are going to be doing X, Y, and Z. And our value is to help them do Z. And like, Mm -hmm. we're going to do it by doing this thing. And it's a real hard thing to do. And I don't always get it right. And I don't always do it per se. And, uh, but like, I think that's it's vital and that will if you can do that effectively then people will see the value and saying oh I got this document from from Andy or whoever it is you know uh, from Sarah and now I'll read it because she does a good job of doing that rather than just giving me like useless information so it's like that's a value of let's say distilling the important context and putting it like empathizing with the people reading it and putting it you know in you know Again, going back to that earlier conversation we we're having about like, you know, having the, you know, the, the engineering background understanding kind of like I've been there, I understand it, and this is how we can help them. Uh, it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> uh, for what it's worth, I write a document. I try to every week, I uh, call it the week in review and I try to gather all this context and I put it, you know, in context for, you know, my team. Mm. Um but I had a discussion this morning with a uh, with a uh, another leader here at Netflix, and uh, he had moved to doing kind of yeah a unique, uh, or I should say, a Slack channel, and and it was a context channel where he was putting this information. So I might give that a try. Mm. Uh, maybe that's a little easier for people to let's say um,
0: consume and yeah, consume right yeah. rather than a
1: document, you know, on yeah. Monday morning. Yeah. Uh, I, I wonder how the kind of the interaction, because I really like the Google Docs model of people leaving comments and then there's discussions in the comments, but I think you can do that with Slack with threads and whatnot. So I'm gonna give it a shot.
0: Cool. That's, uh, that's a great place to end. I mean, it, it, honestly, yeah. I just, there's no right answer. Uh, yeah. And, and I'm not gonna add to it because it's clear that, <laughs> like it's clear that you guys have thought a lot about it. So Andy, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, really thank fun. you. This was fun. Awesome. Yeah, likewise.